0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today we're talking about Nietzsche and Arendt and we're talking about Nietzsche and Arendt because both Nietzsche and Arendt are interested in what politics is if there is no good or truth or philosophical object to which politics might be oriented. So in the past, we've talked about Plato and Aristotle. It's very clear that they want politics to be about the good and obtaining the good or making it possible for people to live the good life. But these theorists don't think there is such a thing, and therefore the way they conceptualize politics is very different. So to start with Nietzsche, Nietzsche makes the argument that the concept of the good is really just a tool for enslaving uh, lower class minds, lesser beings. He makes a very sharp distinction between natural masters and slaves, and the masters are able to see that these values are just constructs and able to invent... Different conceptions of the good, different kinds of value systems, values that even go beyond good, that transcend the conceptual distinction between good and evil. The slaves, on the other hand, are not able to think about value in this way. They get entrapped in other people's values and become foot soldiers in other people's causes. And for Nietzsche, the distinction between master and slave is very naturalistic. There's a biological division between these masters and these slaves. In this way, Nietzsche is very much buying Aristotle's argument about there being natural masters and slaves and of these being two distinct different types of people by nature, right? So Nietzsche argues that we need a world where the masters can flourish and express their genius and construct values and also struggle with each other to impose with their will their values on the slaves and to force large numbers of slaves to adhere to their values. So for Nietzsche, it's in the nature of the master to construct values and in the nature of the master to impose the values on the slaves and in the nature of the master to contest with other masters in an agonistic, endless struggle over control of the slaves, right? Right. And for Nietzsche, to make any kind of moral objection to this is, A, to indicate that you're a slave who's unable to see that morality is just a web for controlling you, and uh, B, it's to ask the masters to do something which is in defiance of their nature, since it's their nature as masters to act in this way. He often refers to them as, as lions, right? And to say to the lion not to eat the sheep is to him ridiculous. So... This is the, it's a kind of disturbing theory. Let's make no bones about that. And a lot of people object to it. And I think that there are good reasons to object to it. And they stem from, it's kind of horrible when you throw the good out, what tends to come out of it in terms of politics. If you look at Nietzsche's theory, it, it is very similar to Aristotle's, except where Aristotle has a commitment to the good and is therefore trying to build a state which enables his masters to live a good life, because Nietzsche has dispensed entirely with that category, it just becomes about will to power. It just becomes about imposing one's will on other people in a contest with others who are trying to do the same. So it becomes very, very brutal and gritty. Now, Nietzsche makes the argument that the modern state, that Germany under Bismarck, is not creating space for these geniuses to struggle with each other over values. That instead, the German state and German political theory is enslaving the genius to the state, right? So under Bismarck, there's a culture comp, an attempt to create a unified German national culture. For Nietzsche, this is preventing German geniuses from fully expressing themselves and from cultivating values that are are new and different. It's squelching the dynamism that would otherwise be created by the German genius and subordinating the German genius's artistic brilliance to this national project. And so, especially toward the end of his life, Nietzsche begins arguing that there needs to be some kind of giant cataclysmic war to destroy the nation states so that you can have a return to something resembling Greek city states, small states that are not big enough for any one state to dominate Everybody, or to be uh, bigger than individual human beings. And in that kind of setting, you can have these romantic Greek hero type figures, these genius hero figures who can have cities which are expressions and embodiments of their artistic uh, value creating brilliance. That's the theory in a nutshell. Now, on the other side, we have Arendt. And Arendt is similar to Nietzsche in many respects but different in a few crucial ways so the main crucial difference is that Arendt does not observe the natural slave natural master distinction Arendt thinks that people are more or less equal by nature but they end up with different opportunities to access the political depending on the extent to which they have overcome what she calls the social so Arendt makes a distinction between three kinds of human activity labor work and action labor is about sustaining life consumables like uh, gathering food work is about making tools or implements that enable us to build functioning societies functioning lives action for rent is about acting in concert with other people in a non-violent, non-coercive, egalitarian, intersubjective, pluralistic way, right? So what, what this means is that if you order somebody around and, and tell them that if they don't do what you want, you're going to hurt them, for Arendt, that's not action. That's a kind of work. You're working on those people and treating them as an implement. So for Arendt, if you have a, a kind of mental picture of, say, A pot, and you're trying to make this pot in the way that you've imagined it ought to be made, right? You shape the clay, you mold the clay to make it align with your mental image of what the pot should be, right? That's a kind of work. You're making an object. Similarly for Eretz, if you imagine an ideal society through philosophy or through some conception of the good, and you try to get real people to conform to that vision that's in your head, you're treating them like clay. You're trying to mold them into a pot rather than treating them as equals that you have a kind of intersubjective engagement with. And when you have an intersubjective engagement with equals, what you are building isn't going to be what's in your head. It's going to be this constantly evolving intersubjective thing that everybody contributes to in lots of different ways. right? So what begins in your head... As soon as you express it and put it out there, other people take it and run with it. Other people play with it and contribute to it and negate aspects of it and contribute aspects to it. And it becomes something that is an irreducibly collective thing that belongs to everybody, right? So that's what Arendt is going for. Arendt wants people constantly in these discussions about what we should do together, how we should act in concert, right? But what Arendt shares with Nietzsche and with Aristotle is this idea that you have to be kind of liberated from physical necessities to be able to engage in a struggle over value, right? Now, aret takes that value struggle much less seriously than Aristotle does because Aristotle says that we are trying to find the good together. And because for Aristotle we're trying to find the good together, there's an anchor on this. There's something that it's always trying to get closer to. Because for aret if we're trying to find the good together, we're trying to mold society into an idea, into something like a pot. Uh, she has to reject that. And that means that instead, the object of Arendt's theory is the action itself. It is the deliberation and discussion and the choices, the choice making. Right. So for Nietzsche, the object is not the pursuit of the good. It's the creation of new values by genius individuals. For Arendt, the object is not the pursuit of the good. It's the creation of new decisions, new choices by people acting collectively in this intersubjective pluralist way, right? So for both Nietzsche and Arendt, the goal is to get emancipated from material conditions so that you can engage in a cultural idealistic competition among different ideas for Nietzsche, it's something geniuses do through violence. For Arendt, it's something that people do collectively in an intersubjective, nonviolent way, right? But in both cases, the emphasis is on the struggle over value itself rather than on any particular conception of value which might be pursued or even a more generic notion of the good itself as something which is to some degree ineffable in which all conceptions fall short of, right? So you, you end up, and people will go, well, okay, if you don't like the kind of theory that you get with Nietzsche, well, what if you instead go with a theory like Arendt's? If you go with a theory like Arendt's, you are getting this, uh, you're getting something which is still a struggle over value, but it's a struggle over value that doesn't have a lot of the troubling features that Nietzsche's has. It doesn't have this sharp distinction between masters and slaves. It doesn't have violence, right? Right. Uh, Now, you can raise the objection, well, why not? If there's no distinction between good and bad, why not have violence? Uh, And it stems from a procedural difference between Arendt and Nietzsche, where Arendt thinks that if a decision is formed through talk, because people are not freely participating in it, you aren't getting action. And for rent, what we want is not to impose our will on others, it's to have this feeling of being together with other people working toward the same goal, a goal that we've come up with together through a mutually interrogative process. Right. So it avoids some of the more overtly troubling aspects of Nietzsche's theory. But there are some other issues with it. Uh, one is that It's still the case for rent that time that we spend engaged in this action must be time that is not spent on labor and work, on obtaining food, on building tools, right? So the more time you spend doing labor and work, the less time is available for action. And so there's this question of distribution of action time, time that's available for action. Now... Arendt does not want politics to be about distributing time for action. She wants politics to be about action itself. And for Arendt, if politics becomes about distributing labor and work, politics becomes about what she calls the social rather than the political. And when politics is subordinated to the social, action becomes subordinated to labor and work. The object of politics becomes labor and work rather than action. Right? For this reason, she argues that we've got to observe a strict division between these things. And labor and work become part of the private sphere and the realm of action becomes her public realm or public sphere. Now, this results in a critique of Marx because for Arendt, Marx, in trying to organize the social in such a way that everyone is... Uh, emancipated from exploitation, has turned politics into a means of negotiating endless disputes among classes over the distribution of labor and work. And she also accuses Marx of having a conception of human flourishing, which is far too embedded in labor and work. Marx's idea that we do different kinds of work and we're not confined to a singular role, hunt in the evening, fish in the morning, speak philosophy at midday, etc., etc., for a rent. these are not sufficiently collective activities. They're not action. And therefore, for a rent. Marx doesn't properly understand what human life is about. So you get this, this sharp critique of Marx. And so then the question goes, well, okay, if people are equal by nature, how are they going to be able to equally participate in the public realm without some means of distributing what's in the social realm to allow for that? And Arendt doesn't really give an answer to that question. We don't really get an explanation. And I think that a big part of that is, for Arendt, the human condition is a condition in which access to the public realm is fleeting and scarce. So this means access to the kind of life that Arendt takes to be valuable is fleeting and scarce, and not something that can be provided for uh, in a thoroughgoingly robust way. That's not to say that the construction of a public realm isn't important to rent, but by Arendt's own acknowledgement, public realms are, tend to not be very durable, tend to not last for very long. And again, the emphasis is on Greek city-states. Greek city-states have, for rent, a kind of public realm, but one which was only available to the citizens, which in, say, Athens were property-owning men. Uh, That suggests that it's possible for a public realm to exist that doesn't include everybody, and that for a rent, it's more important to create a public realm and to sustain it than to ensure that it includes everybody, and indeed to try to make sure that it includes everybody risks the social invading the political and the political being subordinated to the social. That said, a rent also critiqued capitalism and liberalism for making society all about the market and therefore all about labor and work. So for Arendt, both the liberals and the Marxists were guilty of this subordination of the political to the social. And it's part of why Arendt, who briefly had a relationship with uh, Martin Heidegger, Uh, was looking for a kind of new way of being in the world, a new way of being in the world that escapes this agonism between two different forms of of the social. And of course, in Heidegger's case, Heidegger uh, for a while lapsed into Nazism and believed that the Third Reich was offering this new way in the world. Uh, Arendt was Jewish and therefore certainly could not hold that view. And it was part of the contention that caused them to split. The trouble there is that if you're trying to get a public realm that has this level of plural nonviolent agonism in it, if that's your goal and you don't have a conception of the good which anchors that goal, you can make the kind of mistake which Heidegger makes, where Heidegger, in just looking for a way out of the social, is willing to embrace almost anything regardless of what division it makes in terms of who gets to be part of the public realm and who doesn't. Uh, And so this lack of anchoring to value I think still leaves Arendt's theory open to a lot of trouble, albeit not in the obvious way in which Nietzsche's theory is open to a lot of trouble. But both of these theories, because they're mainly Aristotelian in construction, they observe this distinction between what you need to survive and what you need to thrive. They view the city or the public realm as the thing which allows you to get what you need to survive and opens a space or creates a space for this thriving. Um, They're both inspired to a large degree by Athens, by Greek city-states, and by the kind of agonism which goes on within and among Greek city-states. There's a lot of commonality there, but when you take the good out, it doesn't give you necessarily a more egalitarian society, as illustrated by Nietzsche. But even if the theorist maintains a commitment to some kind of egalitarianism, that egalitarianism does not necessarily have to be realized in any serious way because the struggling has become the object of the theory so i think i think there are some issues with those theories as attractive as many people find them Um, and they but they contrast quite sharply with marx and i think one point that they do make is that providing for the means of subsistence is not necessarily enough to secure meeting so one of the critiques that an Arendtian might make of Marx that I, I find interesting is, okay, let's say that we've got a distribution of wealth that is such that everyone can potentially choose what they do with their time. Are people going to have anything meaningful that they can do? Or is this system which distributes the resources going to be so big and so totalizing that it eliminates any space for real human creativity?
2: Hmm.
0: The trouble is that if, if you don't have any anchoring to a conception of the good, this human creativity can just be a space for people to cause trouble and make conflict. And Arendt tries to anchor that by having this commitment to nonviolence, this commitment to no natural inequality. But there's no obvious reason why you have to be committed to those things if you don't have a conception of the good, which is forcing you to commit to them. If you don't have a conception of the good that's forcing you to commit to them, it's just fortunate happenstance if you happen to affirm egalitarianism or you happen to affirm nonviolence. There's nothing preventing someone who has a a rents interest in there being some kind of struggle from taking an Nietzschean view and arguing that that struggle should be much more intense, much more hierarchical. The good would have to be the thing that would do the anchoring to prevent the Arendtian theory from sliding into an Echean theory.
2: Hmm.
0: Without the good, there's no anchoring, and you can drift very easily. And this is in part why uh, existentialists, for instance, have always struggled to come up with a moral theory that is satisfying, because if you argue that human meaning comes from making choices, then when you try to prohibit bad choices like choosing to have a theory which features heavy natural inequality and a lot of violence, when you try to prohibit that, you are then circumscribing the choice, which is the thing that you have argued is what it means to be human. And this, this leads to theories like Carl Schmitt's. Carl Schmitt, who argues that, uh, oh yeah, choice is what's important, and what matters is being able to choose who your friends are and who your enemies are, and what it is that matters to you and unites you as a group. You know, what is your way of life? And your way of life can be based for Schmidt around anything you want because there's no good which would prevent you from choosing the wrong things. So there's nothing in Schmidt's theory to prohibit you from deciding that what unifies people is their race or their gender or their religion or anything else, their eye color, their hair color, whatever else it might be, whether they like to wear dresses, whatever it might be without the good, there's nothing that can prevent the things that you choose as the basis for the struggle being pretty grim. Mm. And of course, Schmidt ends up supporting the Nazi party for a time. And many Nazis credited Nietzsche with inspiring them. Although Nietzsche himself does not appear to have been uh, committed in that direction because Nietzsche himself oppose the nation-state on the grounds that the nation-state stifles the genius. So you get a lot of, of trouble here. And I think it's, it's just a good example of where the other critiques of capitalism and, and modernity go. Um, because we talked last week about Marxism, and in the episodes to come, we're going to do a little bit more of that. We're going to follow the Marxists after Marx, and we're going to do some Frankfurt School. And when we talk about the Marxists, one of the, the big competitor to Marxism during a lot of the early 20th century is this idea that there's just no good. This kind of post Nietzschean theory, which gets taken up in a number of different forms. And you get this search in continental Europe for value or for purpose or meaning to life. And the Marxists will eventually, especially during the period of the Frankfurt School, begin to acquire this debate and have this debate make its way into Marxism. And one of the troubling things about this debate is that because it denies the good, it is very difficult for it to articulate why Nazi views are not okay why it's not okay to be a fascist, why fascism is wrong. It becomes very hard to explain why if you don't have a conception of the good. Because if the meaning of life is to choose values and struggle for them, whether it's collectively with a group of people in a public realm or individually as, as the genius or collectively through different nation states, each of which belongs to a specific people in Schmidt's view, if that's what life is about, just struggling over values and it doesn't matter what the values are, then isn't that what fascism is? It's, it's a commitment to value for seemingly arbitrary reasons, to unite people around that value, to define other people as outside that value, and to use that as the basis for pursuing political unity in a way which is indifferent to what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. That's where I think a lot of this stuff goes off the rails. And Marxism ends up interacting with a lot of this stuff, and we'll get into some of the interactions with it. Uh, But we really start to lose the thread here. We start to lose anything which would, would keep us from doing really terrible things to each other. Instead of... Being a theory which gives us meaning, we we start to develop theories which help explain why we can do terrible things to other people. Mm. Because the good doesn't matter, and what matters is who's on your team, who's on your side. Mm. What matters is what you will. Mm. And so this is why if we go back a little ways when i talked about the collapse of catholic hegemony in europe the collapse of the consensus this is why i talked about this as a potentially troubling thing it's not because of any commitment to that catholic hegemony i'm not a catholic Uh, i'm not a christian it's because once in western europe our conception of unity became bound up with that as we started to take that apart we started to have a hard time substantiating any conception of the good at all. Uh, once it became the case that the good was bound up with this very, very dogmatic particular thing, to doubt the dogma was to doubt the good itself. And it became impossible to articulate persuasively conceptions of the good which were freestanding of dogma. It became much too easy to deny the dogma and then to, on that basis, assert that there is no value at all apart from what human beings insist upon. Yeah. And it was a slow, extended process where, you know, first we, we moved morality and politics into two separate camps. We erected this division between the two, right? And then we started arguing that morality is something people have to do in private, that it's not something for the state to be involved with. The state became amoral, right? Mm. And what is the state associated with that is amoral? What's the amoral content? Well, it's, it's the market. The state becomes associated with impersonal procedures rather than with substantive value. And substantive value is relegated to the private sphere and then... It is done away with completely in Nietzsche. Nietzsche says that substantive value is is not real beyond our insistence upon it. And at that point, we're really in trouble. Hmm. Because now we have individuals asserting themselves and asserting whatever it is they want to assert without any concern for anything else. And Weber talks about this as immaturity. Weber talks about these immature people who are asserting their gods and demons without concern for the nation state, which has given them the opportunity to choose among values. And by choosing their values in a way which shows disregard for the survival of the state, they're undermining the state's ability to survive. Why are they doing that? They're immature, he said. But they got more immature as time went on. Instead of getting more mature, They got less mature as they, as these different values proliferated, people wanted the state to reflect them as individuals, right? And that's what you get with Nietzsche. Nietzsche goes, well, a nation state is too big to ever reflect one genius's vision. So we have to tear down the nation state and make little states which completely and fully embody and reflect the vision or viewpoint of one person, of one magnificent genius, right? And then that genius's vision can fight in the phalanx with other genius visions. You know, the fighting among the cities can, can be the struggle among the visions for which one is the greatest, and winner takes all. You get this... this just lack of, of concern for people, and it becomes all about these individualistic assertions. Now, with Arendt's theory, that gets covered up... A lot by this insistence on nonviolence and this insistence on intersubjectivity and this creation of this public realm. But swept under the rug is all of these elements of the social, right? Swept under the rug is all the labor and work that has to be done to sustain the public realm and these questions about who ought to do it, questions about what the Greeks call economicos, household management, right? The economy and the household. So that means questions about division of labor in society and it means questions of division of labor about the household. These things become non-political questions, not something we can argue about, not something we can debate about. And to a large degree, what we get is people who want these, these different agonistic struggling visions, these different visions of struggle. And I think that there are kind of four big ones. In modernity. There's the Arendt position that we want a kind of sanitized struggle in this public realm with the social swept under the rug. There's Nietzsche's position that we want this sharp, sharp struggle among individuals. Then there's Schmitt's position that we want these nation states, these peoples to struggle with each other with this very thick definition, thick self-concept of what they are. And then there's Weber's position, which is an attempt to sit in between these other positions where there are many gods and demons and they struggle with each other. But if people are mature enough, they can keep that struggle under wraps and we can still have a nation state which secures order and creates a safe environment for these gods and demons to fight with each other.
1: Yeah. And I think that this shows how Nietzsche and Arendt perhaps at the end of uh, standing Respectively, at the end of a cycle that reappears uh, several times in modernity, where you've got an idea or a practice being disembedded from the political, and then returning to the political in some way. Um, And for instance, as Benjamin just noted, with morality, morality gets thrown away from the political with Machiavelli in the early modern period, but then morality returns to the political um, and say with Fichte, that is a liberal individualist morality that had developed outside of the political with Kant, getting thrown back into the political uh, and becoming, for Fichte, nationalism. for Nietzsche and Arendt, it's a similar idea. Um, but subtly different because for neither Nietzsche nor Arendt is the state the central focus of the theory. If anything, the state is a means to an end, and it is in the way with Fichte too. With Fichte, it's promoting a national culture that is the end and the aim of political authority. Uh, But for Nietzsche and Arendt, it's uh, perhaps an even more extreme version of this uh, slightly individualist morality, which developed outside of politics, returning to politics, but in the case of Nietzsche and Arendt in a very strange way, because it's in the notion of struggle, the notion of natality in Arendt, in creating new things through political action, and... Uh, the creative genius in Nietzsche's philosophy, the Lycurgus figure who is able to escape from slave moralities and lay down the law themselves, lay down new moralities, new ethics, new values. And this emphasis on struggle, uh, I guess you could see it as a rebellion against some of these liberal ideas that had been developing in the modern period and I guess that Nietzsche and Arendt are often framed as critics of liberalism. But I I think perhaps they're critics in a similar way that Fichte was a critic, because Fichte wasn't uh, straightforwardly rebelling against all of these liberal individualist ideas. Rather, he was applying them to the state, translating the notion of individual self-determination into a notion of national self-determination. And... I guess it's more difficult with Nietzsche and Arendt because they, a lot more than Fichte, are saying how they are really rebelling against much of modernity, while Fichte was quite fond of Kant's individualism. Arendt and Nietzsche are trying to get beyond all of that altogether, and they're quite critical of the tendencies of the modern age towards instrumental forms of reasoning and towards uh, stultifying conformity and slave morality. But there's also a sense in which, in emphasising struggle as an end in itself, and the creation of new things, not in order to pursue the good, or even to create a collective state, but struggle for its own sake, where the state and politics are simply means towards perpetuating that struggle. And indeed, politics for Nietzsche and Arendt is this constant plurality and natality in Arendt's case, and this constant war around the creation of new values in Nietzsche's case, uh, which is quite different from ancient conceptions of the political. And arguably, is a continuation and a deepening of certain modern concepts of politics. Because, like mainstream liberal ideas, it's not worshipping something like the good uh, or the collective. Primarily, uh, for Nietzsche and Arendt, politics is about creating something new for its own sake, just as for Kant, we should be pursuing autonomy. We should be laying down our own law for ourselves. For Nietzsche and Arendt, we almost should be doing that, that autonomous creative process, but do that in politics too. And I think there is an argument that just as Fichte and nationalism represents one application or political translation of Kantian liberal individualism, So are the philosophies of Nietzsche and Arendt, at least on some level, the uh, application of some of these liberal ideas to the state, and in applying them in this way, that they tried to rebel against liberalism. But arguably, in the end, they didn't quite escape the cages which they so complained of.
0: Yeah, this is a great point. I really appreciate you making it. Yeah, there is a hostility to the nation state here. But it's a hostility to the nation state, which is framed as an attempt to return to something like the Greek state. But it's not returning to the Greek state because it rejects the emphasis on unity and collectivity and truth and the good, all of which are kind of synonyms for the same thing. It rejects that and instead emphasizes the individual choice. And by emphasizing the individual choosing the value, this emphasis on the Kantian autonomous individual carries over. Yeah. yeah I think that is a great point. And it's, and yeah. it's not just Kant, of course. And yeah. I, I think this is, this is something that bugs me about a lot of attempts in recent political theory to recapture elements of ancient thought. So, Hegel, of course, makes the argument that the Greeks didn't properly understand freedom. The Germans do. The modern state, the German state, is the vehicle by which this is going to happen. And Weber is kind of a continuation of that. Weber is talking about how the German state can construct itself in such a way that it can permit and facilitate this kind of freedom. And the freedom that is being talked about is kind of a Kantian autonomous individual, right? Of course, the reaction to the Kulturkampf, the reaction to Weimar Germany and the Third Reich Mm. is for a lot of German theorists to go, actually, the German nation state is not capable of securing the German conception of freedom. Mm. And there's then a move to remix the Greek state to make it compatible with the German ideal of freedom. Yes. Right? Yeah. And this is often pitched as a kind of ancient revivalism from these mid-century German theorists like Arendt or Strauss or whomever. But it's not... Greek revivalism, because it is Greek stuff without the conception of the good, which is the, is the unity that Greek political theory is oriented around. So it's an attempt to take some of the mechanics of Greek political thought, strip them of their telos, of their final end, and instead make the German ideal of freedom the final end of the Greek state. Mm. And... There's an inherent tension there because the thing which kept people working together in Greek cities was this conviction that there was a polis or a republic or that there was a state that they were all mutually committed to and that was mutually committed to them in turn which was their protector, right? When you do away with connecting this deep unity in some way to the truth or to what's good, and instead frame the state as a place to struggle over things, rather than as a way we try to come together and unite toward a good, even if you try to pitch that as nonviolent and egalitarian and intersubjective, because that coming together no longer aims at the good, the basis for the unity of the state is not secure. Mm. Right? So... This is why Weber is constantly frustrated at the immaturity of the German citizen who keeps putting their own value ahead of the maintenance of the state. And the reason this can happen is that in Greek political theory, the maintenance of the state is intimately connected with the good in such a way that you cannot claim that you are doing good. If what you are trying to do conflicts with the maintenance of the state, there's a very, very deep connection between the good and unity itself for the Greeks
2: Hmm.
0: for the Germans because they have done away with that connection when they try to build a state which keeps people committed to the state there's this contradiction between the commitment to the state and the commitment to the individual's values which is resolved by Schmidt in a state which crushes other values and it's resolved by Nietzsche and Arendt in the getting rid of the state and instead the embrace of smaller polities where the individual human can feel more significant.
1: It's interesting, though, that Nietzsche wants violence to achieve this because violence, violence, of course, can break apart. It can destroy polities and tear them to pieces. But violence is also a mechanism in history whereby, as uh, the historical sociologist Charles Tilly put it, well. War makes a state and the state makes war. Violence can lead to state centralization. And Nietzsche admits this when he's talking about the, um, the, the, the ways in which war can lead to a pyramidal structure in society. And he says that war supplies, uh, in the Greek state, he, he writes, war supplies the archetype of the state the immediate separation and division of the chaotic masses into military castes, from which there arises the construction of a warlike society in the shape of a pyramid on the broadest possible base, a slave-like bottom stratum.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and he worries about there being too much emphasis on the production of military genius and not enough emphasis on other kinds of artistry. Yeah, yeah. And yet, to construct, to go back to the Greek city-state is to create a more violent, agonistic struggle, which will tend to lead toward more military states. And of course, it's the military competition among small states, which eventually led to bigger states and eventually to the nation-state as a much more ruthlessly efficient military machine than the city-state. And that's why Nietzsche's theory is kind of silly, because... It It's always, you're always, if you're going to have a military struggle, it's going to privilege more efficient military models, and that's eventually going to privilege larger empires and nation states. Mm. Uh, but I think that what Nietzsche does point out is that if you had some kind of, of war which collapsed the existing empires and states, that that would create another age of heroes. And while that age of heroes would eventually come to an end in the form of some of these states dominating the others and succeeding in overcoming the others, that would be another period of of genius. So mm. the periods of history that we look at as dark periods when human living standards fell and people's lives got worse, like the Dark Ages or the Bronze Age collapse, for Nietzsche, these are moments of opportunity for the genius.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: And they're the periods of history where there's heroism and where the singular individual has the greatest potential to have an impact because yeah. of the collapse of other structures which would otherwise restrain. But he
1: doesn't like what the singular individual builds. He doesn't like the the, the kind of peace. No, because the,
0: the singular individual will eventually try to will the world into a reflection of their values in a way which cuts off the opportunity for the geniuses of the future, right? Yeah. You know, kind of like how Machiavelli talks about the order of republics as being really, really glorious because the order of republics creates a schema which directs what everyone else does in the future and in this way the order of republics is able to dominate the lives of people generations later right Mm. nietzsche doesn't like that because that prevents the geniuses of the future from achieving the same excellence as the order of the republic Mm. so there's this constant desire to tear down and make new in nietzsche
1: yes but but even then and I, I, I'm not sure the degree to which Nietzsche means this as a critique of what happens in modern war fighting or whether he means this as a way of saying uh, that to some degree it's always inevitable that some people will be slaves and others masters and because he accepts this uh, version of the Aristotelian master-slave uh division that perhaps he means a bit of the latter that nietzsche says after he acknowledges the role of military genius uh, that every man with his whole activity is only dignified to the extent that he is a tool of genius consciously or unconsciously whereupon we immediately deduce the ethical conclusion that man as such absolute man possesses neither dignity nor rights nor duties Only as a completely determined being, serving unconscious purpose, can man excuse his existence. So Nietzsche's saying here that even if you do have a military genius, then other people just become a means towards that genius. Um, And so, in a way, the repression of a slave morality is very limited for Nietzsche, um, and it's not... It, it's certainly not a, a universal thing where everybody becomes a military genius. No, only some people can become in, military geniuses because that's the only way to run wars efficiently. And insofar as everybody could become a mini- military genius, surely that would be for a very brief period of time because immediately after you have a, a hobby. Oh, yeah, yeah, it
0: is. It's definitely not everybody. Yeah. It's only the natural masters for nature right. who are able to do that, right. the, the geniuses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, they're, they're, that constant emphasis on there needing to be more space for genius means that you can never have an order that is too well-developed or too secure. Yes. A well-developed, secure order is a threat to the Nietzschean ideal. Yes. So there's always a, a kind of—some people frame him as as anti-political for this reason, that there's an anti-political streak in Nietzsche, because for him, politics is a means to artistry and genius— and because politics is constantly trying to achieve order, it's constantly trying to, from his point of view, stifle artistry and genius. And therefore, it is both a means to an end and also something which easily becomes an impediment. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think when you, when you look at a rent, there is a similar emphasis on continuing to keep this space for struggling open. Mm. But you don't have the violence. And so there, there are questions here about, certainly rent is not a, a wholesale pacifist. There can be violence involved in the making of the public realm, but that's making. That's a kind of work rather than action.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Violence, as long as it's excluded from the public realm, is potentially permissible in the theory. So there can be violence in labor relations or work relations.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which makes uh, a quite stark and disturbing similarity with Nietzsche, because both Nietzsche and Arendt seem to be saying that political action depends on some people doing the other stuff. And Arendt does say that uh, automation is a way of replacing
0: labour in some way in the human condition. But she's hostile to automation. Right. She doesn't like automation. Th- that, that's
1: the contradiction. She, she says simultaneously. Because she thinks
0: yeah. doing labor and work is also a part of being human. Mm. She doesn't want to, to overcome it, nor does she want to distribute it fairly.
1: And this, I think, offers a stark contrast with Aristotle, because uh, while Arendt does say um, that even the most primitive machine guides the body's labour, and eventually replaces it altogether in the chapter on work in the human condition. Arendt goes on to complain that uh, instrumental reason, um, whether it be in capitalist concepts of exchange value on the market, or whether it be in Marx's concept of use value, uh, where use value under socialism comes to supplant market exchange value. Uh, Arank complains that uh, this notion of use value is still uh, robbing things of all intrinsic value. Uh, She says, The much deplored devaluation of all things, that is the loss of all intrinsic worth, begins with their transformation into values or commodities. For from this moment on, they exist only in relation to some other thing which can be acquired in their stead so
0: and uh, this also contributes to her concern about technology because mm-hmm. for her and this is similar to Gandhi the proliferation of machines causes human beings to start to service the machines and to live their lives dependent on and therefore constantly servicing the need of the mach- the needs of the machines mm. and you can see how this you might extrapolate this theory out of Marx right because Marx says that we kind of have to organize the relations of production and the superstructure of our society in a way which enables the forces to develop well the forces are technology right so our whole society becomes organized around what is necessary for technology to develop? Because if we don't develop technology, then we lose competitiveness and are conquered or subsumed by others, mm. right? So in this way, and in Marx's theory, we are all kind of dependent on whatever it is that technology needs to develop. And if we don't comply with that, if we fetter the development of technology, then it will overcome us. Yes.
1: But for our end.
0: So there, yeah. there is a sense in which that is true yeah. in Marx's own theory. Yeah. and. For a rent, that's a big problem. Yeah, yeah. Now, how do you get out of that problem? Uh, you can't just insist that that problem doesn't apply. And arguing that we have to be committed to nonviolence and, and, Yeah. It's still going to be the case that if you don't pay attention to technological development, if you don't organize a society around these things, it's going to be hard to maintain that public realm. Hmm. So you end up having a lot of space for various kinds of work, you would have to. Otherwise, how could you have the public realm? And that would include the work of developing the technology so that you can develop the ability to defend the public realm from those who would attempt to get rid of it. Mm. So there ends up being a lot of violence that still surely must occur here because you have to use violence to defend the public realm from outside forces, outside factors. You have to use violence to ensure that the labor and work is complete, which enables the public realm. So there's got to be violence internally within the the society and violence externally. But the people who like Arendt always like to focus on the role violence plays within the political for her. Mm. And this leaves out all of the work that has to be done, that Arendt acknowledges has to be done Mm. to create that public realm, and which is so heavily downplayed in this theory that it feels a lot gentler than Nietzsche's theory, but it's not that much gentler. Right, right. It's not. Yeah. A Greek city can have internally rules that say that you don't kill each other and that you, you know make decisions democratically. For Nietzsche, that's fine. For Nietzsche, you can have a genius who has this vision for how the city will work that is relatively peaceful internally among the citizen class. That doesn't conflict with Nietzsche's theory. What Nietzsche emphasizes is that those cities then have to compete with each other, those geniuses then have to compete with each other, and that the non-geniuses have to be subordinated. Uh, in Arendt's theory, the people who are doing the labor and the work are subordinated, and presumably each public realm will have some level of contestation over what's needed to do labor and work, over resources and capital, with other public realms, and that will just be part of the work of maintaining the public realm. So Mm. there's a way you can frame this where Nietzsche's theory and Arendt's theory look very similar, but are different ways of describing more or less the same condition, which is a scenario where you have lots of small city-states, lots of small public realms in agonistic contest with each other. Arendt just gives us a lot more than Nietzsche does on how she thinks that public realm ought to operate internally in the kind of city that she would build. Mm. We get a clearer picture of what Arendt thinks politics should work, uh, how how she thinks it should work. Nietzsche doesn't give us that because Nietzsche does not want to constrain the genius of his followers. And he thinks that if his followers implement a a form of city based on something that he tells them, some kind of plan he gives them, that they are then slaves to his vision Mm. rather than cultivating their own vision. Mm. So Nietzsche will not say, oh, the public realm or the city should work this way or that way. He wants a struggle among lots of different cities. Mm. Arent's struggle is not as total as that because she does make recommendations for how the public realm should operate, mm. which are supposed to apply in all public realms. Mm. And in that way, Arent tries to constrain to some degree the options available to people forming public realms. But I think part of why she does that is because Arendt sees the public realm as something which everybody comes together to form, and therefore her contribution to its formation is just one contribution which other people can intersubjectively engage with. Whereas for Nietzsche, it's geniuses who construct cities, it's geniuses who construct states, and therefore, if he gives a vision, that vision will chain people and prevent people from reaching their potential. Hmm. Arendt sees what she's doing as just another discursive contribution. Now, if you're trying to criticize Arendt, you could frame this proposal as itself a philosophical project, which is committed to a conception of what is a good public realm. Mm. But of course, Arendt is trying to deny that that's what she's doing. But from Nietzsche's point of view, that would, there would be an implicit theory of the good in Arendt's work, mm. which causes her to stipulate that the public realm should be nonviolent that there ought to be plurality, natality, and so on. Nietzsche could accuse Arendt of being inconsistent there. But for Arendt's part, Arendt would say that what she's describing is what's necessary to have actual dynamism that doesn't just reproduce empires and nation states under dominant military geniuses. Yeah, yeah. And yet, in practice, the needs of war, the needs of, of making the public realm still tend to take precedence in historical Greek city-states. And that's in part why no one has created a, a state which Arentians would recognize as an appropriate, good, solid public realm. Hmm. Or if they have created it, it's only been briefly and not for a lasting period because eventually the demands of war, which mean also the demands of technology, the demands of the economy, these things which you have to pay attention to so that your state can compete with other states and not be eliminated, those things tend to eventually take precedence, and politics tends to become about those things. Hmm. In a way, by trying to to build a state out of the human condition. Arendt also built a state which had remarkably little to do with the human condition
2: Mm. In trying
0: to box the social out and box out war and box out the economy. Arendt described a public realm that is really a, a, a public realm that could only exist in a very different kind of society, one with fundamentally different competitive constraints.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: And yet she doesn't support the technology, which might lead to a, a scenario where maybe you could start to talk about that kind of public realm as making a certain amount of sense.
1: Yeah, and there's the further issue that Arendt is not only separating action from labor and work, from stuff to do with production, but Arendt is also separating action. Uh, And it's worth, of course, remembering that Aristotle does draw a separation between production and action in the politics. but it's quite briefly, um, and Aristotle does not claim that uh, that these are totally separate domains. It, it seems at times as though production is just something that uh, might have use values, but also might have
0: other values too, might have exchange values, for instance. Are an, well, yeah. to, to, to clarify that a little bit, yeah. in Aristotle's case, there is uh, tools. There are tools that are instrumentally used. Yeah. So a slave acts, but acts in an instrumental way based on the direction of the master. And action for Aristotle is something that a free citizen does rather Mm. than someone who is owned or or who is an instrument of someone else.
1: Yes, yes. Mm. And I guess action, Aristotle would say, isn't something that's totally divorced from the needs of production because Aristotle says that the state might uh, persist for the sake of living a good life, but it initially comes into being. For the sake of maintaining life, for the sake of uh, keeping citizens alive and satisfying whatever material demands that they can
0: legitimately make on the state. And so Aristotle Mm -hmm. recognizes that the state has always got to make sure that the state secures its own survival. The state has got to not be conquered by other states. It's got to provide for food and and the essentials of life. Mm. And if it doesn't do that, then it can't achieve the higher values. Uh, mm. And that's that's the thing. For for Aristotle, there is this sharp distinction between vulgar and virtuous. And so the citizen through action can choose to act in a vulgar or virtuous way. And the vulgar virtuous distinction sounds a lot like a rent. You know, the vulgar is to do with money or status. It's to do with things which you might think of as more instrumental. Mm. Uh, but interestingly, a rent treats status as an aim which we pursue in politics. Because Arendt doesn't have a conception of the good, instead of saying that you know, it's vulgar or virtue, uh, Arendt makes politics about pursuing glory and reputation yes. to a very large degree. Yes,
1: yes, yeah, yeah.
0: Because she doesn't have a conception of the good to make it about, she treats recognition and status as what we are trying to get out of our participation right. in the public realm. Yeah. And in this way, Arendt's theory, if we go back to the, you know, Plato's myth of the metals where you have uh, in our lexicon iron as survival, bronze as luxury, uh, uh, silver as reputation status, and gold as the good. Arendt's theory is very, very silver, very silver, because it's very much about getting other people to view what you've done as, as glorious and impressive. The speech act, the performance by the performer is about getting the audience to receive them well and to take what they've said or contributed to the public realm up and incorporate it into the collective action. Mm. That, that's a very silver, it's a very silver theory.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of that is because RN is not only trying to divorce action from its productive base but uh, and saying therefore that action shouldn't be managing production at all whereas aristotle is perfectly fine with politics being about managing uh, class divisions and the material demands that classes make indeed that is much of what aristotle's politics is and rn does note in uh, in one of the footnotes in the human condition that plato and aristotle are in some senses the first materialists um, in history, anticipating Marxist materialism because they acknowledge that you have to satisfy the different needs which people make in the state. But Arendt isn't only doing that. Uh, after separating action from production, Arendt also draws this separation between action and contemplation. So we mentioned this division between uh, labor, work, and action. That is all part of what Rn calls the, the Vita Activa, which is separate from the Vita Contemplativa, the life of contemplation, um, where she draws a further division between uh, thinking, willing, and judging, uh, the significance of which is not too large for our present discussion. But the point is that are into separating action from contemplation and saying that uh trying to do politics in the platonic way in pursuit of the good or perhaps even in a standard aristotelian way of pursuing what is good for the polis or for the soul or for what our reason tells us to do and this for Aren't isn't politics. Politics is action, which is something that is separate from both production and contemplation. It's this free-floating sphere, um, politics separate from both the body and the soul, somehow in between, and therefore losing either a sound economic or philosophic grounding. And Of course, what's left are these needs which seem intermediary between body and soul, like recognition um, and aesthetic value. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. And, th- and that's why I've always found that a rent is attractive to a very specific kind of person who likes the silver and wants to keep out both the gold and the iron and bronze. It's a very specific kind of person who values speech acts for themselves in an intrinsic way and, and has that as their not just something that they value among other things, but as so core and so primary that they want to say that all of that other stuff should be kept out of politics so that politics can be a pure space for glorious Mm. speech-making. Yeah, and I, I think you're quite right to point out this distinction between contemplation and action for Arendt. And it gets back to what I was saying earlier in the episode about pots, right? So for Arendt, if you contemplate the good, it's like contemplating the pot and then trying to make a pot that aligns with what you've contemplated. It's making the clay into the pot. It's not having a conversation with people about pots and then coming together in a kind of committee to make a pot. It's you've got a a contemplated idea in your head and you are then trying to realize it. And similarly with the good, she she thinks that that's how people try to apply the good to politics and that therefore that threatens fundamentally the kind of intersubjective plurality she wants to create and accuses Plato in particular of this. But I think that Plato, if I may defend Plato for a minute, I think that Plato had a lot of attention, paid a lot of attention to the fact that different people in the city care about different things. And that all of those four metals are important to different people to different degrees in different ways. And Arendt, while she acknowledges that there's a need for production, Denies the good outright, in effect, denies the gold, uh, and then tries to put the bronze and the silver in a ghetto in the social. Mm. And one of the things that I think is valuable about those Greeks is that they never lose sight, as much as they care about the form or they care about the good or the unity of the city or whatever, they never lose sight that you're not going to be able to pursue those things unless you also take care of these other drives. And that politics has got to pay attention to all of these things and not just one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think pretty much everybody who comes later, to some degree or other, tries to emphasize some of these things at the expense of others. In part because Mm. we're often reacting to people who have neglected some of these things, right? So in Machiavelli's case, he's reacting to people who have talked about gold, 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 God, morality, lots and lots and lots. and, And he wants to say, but wait... For the state to survive, it needs to do these other things.
2: Hmm.
0: And similarly, when you start talking about you know, theorists who've taken an interest in commerce, like Adam Smith, or theorists who've taken an interest in you know, production, like Marx, you know, you know, the bronze stuff, luxuries and, and consumer goods and all of that, in addition to survival, it drives that are important. And when you have people like Marx coming in and going, hey, wait a minute, we have to pay attention to the basic human needs, the basic human needs, the basic human needs. Then you'll have people like Arendt come back and go, well, what about some of these higher human needs? Uh, And people like Gandhi, Gandhi does this for the gold, because Gandhi is all about truth and all about morality, and virtually everything else is dropped out of Gandhi's theory. So whereas Arendt is maybe all silver, not much anything else, Gandhi is all gold, not much anything else. And these theories form as reactions to... The Marxist critique that the ordinary person's basic needs are not being met. Their reaction's going, well, modernity isn't meeting these other needs either. And these other needs are more fundamental or more important. Uh, And so what we kind of get as we start to move into the 20th century is just from every direction, all of those drives, the survival drive, the luxury drive, the honor drive, the morality, the good drive we're getting these critiques of the modern state, and they just start springing up all over the place, all coming in lots and lots of different directions. But the ones that are not committed to value, because they're not committed to the good and they drop the gold out, those critiques are not anchored to anything and can be used in all sorts of of devious ways. Now, if you take some of the things that Arendt is saying and you attach them to a theory which does include some account of the good, uh, if you, then you could start to maybe use the theory a little bit more productively. If you do something, you, know, you can gain a lot of insight from a lot of things that Nietzsche says. If you don't buy this idea that there's no good at all, uh, and that people can just do whatever they want and make whatever values they want, It's valuable to point out that the modern state is stifling, that the modern state tends to prevent people from coming up with new stuff, that modern politics is very rigid in terms of what it allows us to do, that there isn't a lot of space for human beings to have values that compete with the market. These are valuable insights. But if you have these insights aligned with this idea that there's no good and that there's nothing that we should all be trying to do, well, it begs the question, you know, why care about it? Why, why does it matter that we have a state that's heavily instrumentalized around the market? Uh, if there's no good, if there's no right or wrong or better or worse way for people to live, uh, who cares? Uh, and what, what stops people from satisfying the human desire for something different, for dynamism and natality, by proposing horrible stuff like the Nazi regime? And to a large degree, the appeal of the Nazi regime, in addition to being rooted in all of the different needs which the Weimar Republic was not meeting consistently for ordinary people in Germany, uh, there's also a lot of just a desire for something different, a desire for something that uh, asserts something else, that something else matters apart from what we usually talk about. And it's a big part of the appeal of the current president of the United States. Just, he just asserts that things matter that uh, our technocratic universities and elites don't recognize as mattering. Uh, And he asserts it rigidly and over and over, regardless of what anyone says or regardless of what other values he tramples on in the process. Uh, And if you're just tired of market values and you're tired of liberalism and you're tired of your various needs not being met, uh, then why not embrace anything that's different? And the answer is because some of this stuff is not good. Some of this stuff leads in bad directions. But if you don't have a conception of the good, then you have no defense against any of that. Mm. And it becomes different for the sake of different, new for the sake of yeah. new. And that's the that's what Nietzsche and Arendt value most at the end of the day. New for the sake of new, struggle for the sake of struggle. And you can't build you can't build anything on that. Yeah, and in a sense, one could view Nietzsche
1: and Arendt as the logical conclusion of the loss of the idea of the good uh, because Nietzsche argues that uh, God is dead and that by implication all of those other bundle of concepts um, denoting absolute value are also gone and Nietzsche argues in uh, Beyond Good and Evil that It is, uh, Christianity is Platonism for the people, that Christianity is the the logical consequence of seeing, uh, or at least a consequence of Plato's invention, Nietzsche says, of pure spirit and the good in itself. Uh, But now it has been overcome, and Europe breathes a sigh of relief after this nightmare. And so Nietzsche is saying that now, without these concepts of good uh, from Plato and the concept of evil that evolves with more Manichean uh, versions of these absolute moralities, that, that that now all that is left is the constant struggle and invention of value. Uh, but it's arguable, therefore, that Nietzsche and Arendt's view is the consequence of the loss of the concept of the good. And that eventually, once you lose uh, the sight of the good as something that isn't reducible to any particular thing, but is just, as Aristotle put it, that for which all else is done, once you lose that idea of there being something which can't be strictly defined, but is that. for which everything else is done, or for which everything else should be done, uh, then you get yourself in the position where morality can't really be justified, because it becomes about arbitrary uh, fetishes, arbitrary uh, placements of value on this or that thing. And it, it ends up in the position where we deprive ourselves as human beings of our humanity, Uh, which is, for Aristotle, the capacity to be a political animal, the capacity to balance between our beast needs and our higher needs. But if you deprive any basis for those higher needs, if we reject the possibility of the good, then we inevitably end up in a situation where we can't balance different needs um, because we are treating some of those needs as... Uh, as our supplements or as our alternatives to the good. It's only by realizing that nothing in this world is perfect. Nothing in this world is the good. Uh, And the good is something we can pursue through balance, but isn't something we can straightforwardly have. It's only then that we can justify balance. And when we lose the good, when we lose any sight of what it is we're striving towards, then we inevitably end up in the kind of imbalance, uh, and perhaps the kind of immaturity that perhaps you see in uh, some of these developments of
0: uh, modern political theory, uh, culminating to some degree in each yeah. Other end. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Insofar as the good is is a balance, is a balance. Mm. Uh, it's a unity which unites these different drives into something where they, wherein they can all be met. And when you drop the good, you end up having to pick one of these drives as the thing that you are going to prioritize as a substitute for the good, and that involves creating an imbalance. So to drop the gold as your drive uh, means that you have dropped the balance of the iron, bronze, and silver, and therefore you will just pick one of those three yep. as the drive, And downplay the others. And this goes back to you might include them, but you'll downplay them, and therefore you'll create an imbalance, which will produce dystopia.
1: And this makes sense because Plato said that it is the philosopher. Plato argued in the Phaedrus that it's the philosopher who is able to see the different needs and is able to balance them, because the philosopher, the distinctive, what's distinctive about uh, the, the philosopher, one who has developed through a certain education, a, inverted commas, gold soul, is that they see the whole, the different needs of the different parts of the city, and try to bring them together. And in this way, if you lose the gold, if you lose philosophy, per se, if you lose uh, any con- conception of what it means to pursue the good, uh, then you inevitably end up in a situation where you're seeing the world from one of these other drives that aren't holistic, which are partial. And because the good is basically about uh, attending to the whole, not just the part, once you lose that deep unity of the good, then it's only really possible to satisfy one part of nature because you've
0: lost sight of the whole. And then to tell yourself and others over and over that by Fulfilling the part, you have fulfilled the whole, uh, an insistence which isn't going to stand up and will eventually produce legitimation problems. Most obvious with Hobbes, who only really tries to fulfill iron survival and nothing else. But I think a lot of other theories, as we've discussed, do this with different drives. Uh, Mm. I also, as we're finishing up, want to make the point that the, the big mistake that puts us down this road is divine command theory, the idea that the good requires a divine commander. And this idea means that if you get any metaphysical dispute about the nature of the divine commander, about whether there's one or many or who it might be or what form it takes, that this puts all of morality into doubt. And mm. if you, prior to this notion of there being the singular unified divine commander who causes morality to come into being prior to that, you could have a lot of different metaphysical speculations about how it all might fit together. Uh, and you didn't have to have a single divine commander who you know, brings the good into being. You know, Plato talks about how people say that the gods are all sorts of are bad in all sorts of ways and have all sorts of flaws, and he says that this isn't good pedagogically because it causes people to imitate badness. But mm. Plato doesn't initially. Yeah, uh, you know, some people interpret Plato as saying that the gods are all good and that people have have lied about them but I prefer to interpret Plato as saying that we ought to tell people that the gods are good because otherwise they might imitate the wrong things. Mm. You You can imagine a lot of different ways in which the universe could be organized, but if you have a commitment to the good that is freestanding of metaphysics, or perhaps even if you come up with a metaphysics that fits your conception of the good and which reinforces it, mm. Mm. that potentially puts you in a little bit better position. Yeah. But I think this is part of the trouble is that I think Plato did pick his metaphysical positions to help the good. I think that Plato's yeah. major contribution is the, is, this con, is, this, is the form of the good. And he invents a metaphysics that is meant to lead people toward the, this moral belief. And- a lot of people subsequently have taken the metaphysics entirely too seriously and they've convinced themselves that the that the good depends on the metaphysics. Not mm-hmm. true. In in Platonism the good is primary and the metaphysics is just a means of of getting people to believe it. It's a it's a noble lie, a legitimation story. The poets have been thrown out of the city because you've got to get people to think about this in the right kind of way. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't think you have to insist that the metaphysical speculations of the Timaeus, for instance, are literally true. Uh, they mm. are devices for getting people to take the good seriously. And the misfortune is that in an effort to spread the good, we spread this uh, a dogmatic metaphysics. Under Catholic hegemony in Western Europe, we spread a dogmatic metaphysics which could not hold up, could not mm. stand up, That dogmatic metaphysics broke down. We ended up with a lot of doubt about the metaphysics, initially different permutations of it, but eventually people doubting it altogether and throwing it out. And then throwing Mm -hmm. the good out with the metaphysics, inverting that relationship between morality and metaphysics, and suggesting that there has to be a divine commander for there to be a good. And Mm. I think that is what has made it so difficult. Now I talk to so many people, especially in Europe, so many young people who who think that the idea that there could be such a thing as the good, well, it's just ridiculous because, you know, what the metaphysical speculations, which might otherwise give rise to that, they, they don't believe in. Mm. And it's very difficult to get people to to even imagine what it would be like to have a belief in the good that freestands the metaphysics. Mm. I think that has done... I, I understand entirely how we got here. It was very routine earlier in our history for people to affirm metaphysical positions. And it was not at all beyond the realm of possibility that a metaphysical position which reinforces a particular view of the good might be spread through a state and distributed. Augustine talks about using the Roman state to do this. It's not at all beyond the realm of possibility that you would do that and that it would work for hundreds of years, more or less, as it did. But when that dogmatism eventually comes apart, When the metaphysics comes apart the morality comes apart too and i think that it's very it's it's very sad it's hard to imagine how we could ever get back to being able to conceive of morality as freestanding metaphysics metaphysics in the west very hard to imagine how we could get there i think that there are other places in the world where ideas like that have survived but in the west it's very hard derek parfit however in on what matters makes a good, solid attempt at doing it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that Derek Parfitt does is try to reject naturalism, attempts to reduce the good to this or that particular passion or this or that particular phenomenon or fetish in the world. Um, and in some respects, we've noted previously in the podcast how Aristotle is seen as the, uh, one of the founders of naturalism And indeed, medieval scholasticism was based on a fusion of Christianity with uh, certain notions taken from Aristotle. But uh, I would suggest that Aristotle's legacy is perhaps quite contested, and I think necessarily so, because while Aristotle did reject Plato's form of the good, seeing it as too abstract for people to pursue, Aristotle preferred a notion of the human good or eudaimonia as something that is within our grasp. At the same time, I think that there is something in Aristotle that really distinguishes um, him from what comes after, because Aristotle does say at one point how the good is just, or, or the human good, is just that for which everything else is done, and couldn't you define the form of the good in this way too? And indeed, the doctrine of the mean, the notion that uh, the good life is about balancing um, between extremes, that seems to only be possible so long as we're not reducing the good to any particular natural fact. So I think there is an extent to which Aristotle is in the shadow of Plato's notion of the forms. And even if he may say that he's rejecting the form of the good, strictly speaking, I think there are a lot of elements of Aristotle that show how. Uh, the philosophy of Aristotle and Plato, is a lot more compatible than perhaps uh, Aristotle thought. And indeed, he begins the politics with this just wonderful uh, paragraph. Every state is a community of some kind, and every community is established with a view to some good. For everyone always acts in order to obtain that which they think good. But if all communities aim at some good, the state or political community which is the highest of all, and which abra- embraces all the rest, aims at good in a greater degree than any other, and at the highest good. Mm.
0: Yes, well, as the listener knows, all of Aristotle's best ideas are compatible with Platonism, <laughs> and all of his worst ideas are not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think, I think we should wrap up for today. We're approaching an hour and a half. You got mm. anything else? No, I think you've covered the bases all right so uh, that wraps us up for today as i mentioned earlier in the episode we're going to do marxism after marx next we're going to move forward into bernstein lukacs we're going to have a little bit of fun uh that'll be the next episode and Mm -hmm. of course if you want to support us you can support us on patreon.com slash political theory 101 all lowercase no space thank you guys so much for listening and have a pleasant rest of the day Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.